0: We are delighted to have you here with us today. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Psalms, to perhaps the second or third most familiar psalm in all of the 150 that are recorded for us, to the 51st psalm, one with which you are likely familiar, where we're going to spend our time together today. You know, two weeks ago, the we were privileged to hear... That the Ashes were expecting. And that was exciting. Last week, uh, we heard that the Buntings were expecting. This week, I guess no one is. But next week, we hope to hear an announcement of someone else expecting because they come in threes. And we're looking forward to the new additions to our family here at Northfield Boulevard. And we're excited for them. We're glad to have you here this morning. If you're visiting with us, you are an honored guest, and we appreciate so much the fact that you are concerned about spiritual things. You know, there is somewhat of a science or maybe an art to choosing the title of a sermon. Sometimes they're just naturally the title of the topic that you are addressing. Sometimes you try to come up with something a little bit creative, maybe to spark the interest of the listener. Uh, I came up with a title today that might be a little bit controversial and at first blush you may say well wait a minute I don't like the way that sounds and you know what I don't like the way it sounds either at least at the outset of our study this morning. Because the idea of what I want from God kind of flies in the face of some of the basic things we talk about as New Testament Christians. After all, it's not what I want from God, it's what God wants from me, right? And I understand that. And I understand that there's something uncomfortable about saying, God, this is what I want you to do for me. This is what I want you to do to me. This is what I want you to do for the benefit of my life. Even though we pray and we ask God frequently, please help us and deliver us and provide for us and cleanse us and purify us and all those different things that we're going to talk about today. You know, I think there's a great deal that we can learn about when it comes to the way that we pray by reading Old Testament prayers or by reading Old Testament psalms or various Old Testament texts. And this is one of those occasions where by reading Psalm 51 that we can understand the pattern of prayer that you and I are to ascribe to. And before you tune me out because I've said what I want from God, please just bear with me that here in Psalm 51... The psalmist, David, is asking God for seven particular things. And I'm not sure that it is by accident that it is seven things that I found listed in the scripture. Because as good Bible students as we are and as we're trying to be, we know that seven is this idea of completion or totality. So I want to go to Psalm 51. We're not going to read all of Psalm 51 this morning for the sake of time, but I do want to just look at the text and understand what's happening in Psalm 51. If you have footnotes in your Bible or if you have little marginal notes, it may suggest to you that this was a psalm that was written at a very difficult time in the life of David. It is, in Psalm 51, a psalm that is described as one of penitence because it's reflecting grief and repentance on the part of David after he had sinned with Bathsheba. We know what had happened with Bathsheba. He committed adultery and then he committed murder. And then one sin multiplied to another all the way back in the Old Testament as we are familiar with. In this particular psalm where David is pleading with God for assistance and might I suggest praying to God in the way that you and I pray to God that he is, among other things, confessing his sin. And we know that throughout Scripture, that one of the things that we need to do when we pray to God is to confess our sin. I would go so far, and I think you would agree with me, that if we pray for a week or two weeks or three weeks, and we never acknowledge our sin, we never do, even as we do publicly when we come together on occasions like this, and say, please forgive us of our wrongs. If there's anything that stands between us and you. We want to be pure in your sight. And so we pray so that we can acknowledge our sin. And then David goes as far as in verse 5, and he does say, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, there's been some false teaching on verse 5 and what that means. But one of the things that seems to me to be a point that we can make from that and a number of other passages, where in the New Testament we are described by nature children of wrath, that we have a propensity to sin. No, we are not born in sin. No, we are not born with a soul that is already tainted by sin in the sense that we need to be baptized when we are infants. That's what some religious groups would teach from this passage and others. But we do have the likelihood of sin And it is so easy for us in that it comes by second nature. And so David in this particular text in verse 9 says, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And he pleads for forgiveness. And in this psalm of prayer, he asks for seven particular things. He says, God, here are seven things I want from you. You might say this is audacious prayer. But then again, aren't we to be audacious in the way that we pray? Aren't we to say, God, you are our God and we come before you boldly, as the Hebrew writers suggest. And I believe that it provides the scaffolding or the framework for our prayers today. Note, if you would, the key word me, M-E, as we find it in this text. What I'd like for you to do maybe sometime this week or the next week is when you have a a five or six minute period, which is all it would take to read Psalm 51 from the first verse to the last, is just read through it, and every time you come to the word me, just pause for a second. And think about what David is saying, please do for me. Because I believe it's appropriate for us to ask things of God. Because if we do not, well... We will not receive those things that the Lord so richly provides for us. So let's go through our list of things in Psalm 51. And the first of those things is he says, be merciful to me. Look if you would at verse one, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. If you're reading from the New American Standard, like some of you like to study from, it says, be gracious to me. I love the idea of graciousness of God. The idea that that God is gracious to me and he's gracious to you. His graciousness is good. That concept of mercy, where he says, have mercy upon me, is found throughout the Bible. I want to just very quickly read four or five verses From Romans chapter 9. Again, as Bible students, as Danny talked about, that we are trying to be, you understand that the word mercy is found throughout the book of Romans quite frequently because of the subject that Paul was addressing to those Christians in Rome 2,000 years ago. The word mercy is found more often in the book of Romans than in any other New Testament book. And in chapter 9 and verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? And this is one of Paul's favorite lines of thinking or arguing. He says, certainly not. And he says in chapter 9 and verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. And so we understand that God shows mercy to individuals and shows mercy to those of us who, without such, are in desperate need of assistance. What does it mean to be merciful? Well, that's a sermon in and of itself. But let me just suggest very quickly that by definition, to be merciful is to show pity towards someone or something. And the idea there is clear that without God's pity, you and I are hopeless. So David says in Psalm 51, in the opening words of his prayer, he says, God, be merciful to me. Because without that mercy, without your pity, I cannot have my transgressions removed. Secondly, he says in the text, he says, cleanse me from my sin. Look, if you would, at verse 2. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I love the phrase, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. If you're reading from some of the alternative translations that are out there, Wash away my guilt. You know, guilt is powerful. Guilt is, as Brother John was talking about on Wednesday evening, one of the most effective tools of Satan when we do not deal with it appropriately. Guilt is designed to get us to change our ways. But too often what we do is we are forgiven by God and we drag around our guilt like a bag of rocks behind us, taking it wherever we go. And God says, I have forgiven you as the scriptures say, I remember those sins no more. David here is saying, wash away my guilt. Make it so that I don't feel that anymore because I have done terrible things. You know, remember what David has done. He has committed adultery. He has lied. He has committed murder. He has deceived countless people. Nathan finally comes to him and he tells him the story of that little ewe lamb. And David says, let me get a hold of him. I'll wring his neck. And then Nathan the prophet says, thou art the man. You're the one I'm talking about here. You're the one who should be feeling the guilt. David sought a thorough cleansing, which is what we seek as well. i want to look at two passages here very quickly in the New Testament. One is in the book of Hebrews in chapter 9, verses 13 and 14, and the other is in 1 Peter, a verse that you probably already know that I'm going to use to illustrate this point. But in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 13, it says that the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience. If you like underlining things in your Bible, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, where we're talking about baptism, does also now save us. What does it do? Does it clean us physically? No. Does it just magically wash away the physical dirt that we are associated with? No. It is the cleaning of a conscience. The purifying in the sense of sin from which you and I are cleansed. When we wash away our guilt. Thirdly, in Psalm 51, he says, Purge me from sin. Look, if you went to verse 7. Purge with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Purge me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. I think we understand what the whiter than snow business is about. The New American Standard here says, purify me. And I appreciate Brother Cameron picking that first song this morning that talks about the idea of God, purify me. Make me pure. I need you to make me pure. Because without God, I can't be pure. We cannot make ourselves pure on our own. By working really hard or running really fast. Only through God's power can that happen. Well, we're familiar with the Old Testament. And in Leviticus chapter 14, it's one of the numerous places where the the, the herb uh, hyssop is referenced. Used for medicinal purposes, among other things, to cleanse a leper. And... In Hebrews chapter 9 verses 18 through 20, we see it associated with the worship of God and the blessing of the covenant relationship that we have with God. And again, I think we're familiar with passages like Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18, where it says, Though your sins be as scarlet, what? They shall be made white as snow. And there's something beautiful about snow when it first falls, (laughs) Especially here in the Mid-South when we know it's going to be gone in a couple of days. You know, where I grew up, when the snow fell, it falls. And then it falls more. And then you get tired of it because rather than it being pure and white, it's ugly and dingy. But isn't snow beautiful when that first falls? You see a bird with bright colors as a transition to that pure whiteness. That's how God says he can purify us of all of our sin, purge us from sin, purify us in a way that no thing else or no one else can do. Number four, allow me to hear you. Make me hear joy and gladness so that the bones you have broken may rejoice. I love that concept. And I really like the NIV Where The NIV says, let me hear. Not just let me listen, not just make me hear, but let me hear. Hearing has always been a key part of the salvation process. We all understand that. In fact, as good Bible students, we know that passages like John 5.24 say that where Jesus speaks and he says, those who hear will be saved. That in Romans 10 verses 14 through 17 it talks about the idea that how will they know unless they have heard? How are they going to believe unless they have heard? And then more famously as we quote, With the mouth one confesses God or the Lord unto salvation. Each of us had to hear, whether it be from our parents, whether it be from a spouse, whether it be from a friend whether it be from a preacher, whether it be in a personal Bible study, each of us had to initially hear the message. And it is up to us to share that message with others. And I love the imagery that David is talking about here when he uses the idea of broken bones. I've got to admit, I can't sympathize with that because I've never broken a bone. But many of you have. And I know of a friend of mine who recently... Just had knee replacement surgery. Got up a little too quick on her own. Shattered her femur. And now she's in the hospital and will be for quite some time. And you know what? She's miserable. Because that pain is horrific. And those of you that have had replacement surgeries, or those of you that have chronic pain, you understand what I'm talking about here. David says... I feel like my bones are broken inside of me because of the sin that I have committed. You and I, when we commit sin, should feel like something is broken. Something is amiss because it very much is. And David says, without hearing, the broken bones because of sin can't be healed. It reminded me of Matthew chapter 5. In that great sermon that Bruce has been talking about on Facebook for the last couple of weeks. Where he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And that one of the key points that we need to always make about Matthew 5 verse 4 is that we might mourn over things in this world. But what we truly need to mourn over is sin. Because that's what's devastating. I appreciate our brother David last week Reminding us that while viruses are deadly, there are things more deadly than it. That while things in this earth can harm us, we need to be fearful of the one who, after the body is dead, can destroy the soul. Number five, David says, I want you to create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. This is the pure heart that you and I sing about, that you and I talk about, and that you and I pray about. God has always wanted men and women with pure hearts. In Proverbs chapter 4, in verse 23, there Solomon says this. He says, "Keep your heart with all diligence. For out of it springs the issues of life. Paraphrase that. Keep your heart pure so that the rest of your life can be made better. And of course, Matthew chapter 5 verse 8, where Jesus again in that Sermon on the Mountaintop is giving those Beatitudes. He says, blessed are those who are pure in heart for they shall see God. Create in me a clean heart. Make me to have a pure heart. Remember that God is about renewal. I love the idea of renewal in the Bible. If you want to do a study on your own sometime, go through and look at the various phrases in the Bible where it talks about renewing. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about renewing the spirit, for example. Uh, We are to renew ourselves in service to God. I love the idea of renewal of being born again, of having new life granted to me. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we find that renewal concept referenced as well as in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 23. But you and I can be renewed, but we ask God for it, do we not? We say, God, please renew me. Create in me a clean heart. Number six... Restore me in your salvation. Drop down to verse 12, if you would. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. There's me again, by the way. And uphold me by your generous spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. What does it mean to restore I think we understand it means to to put something back or to return it back to where it it initially was. Literally, it means to turn back. And I thought that was kind of interesting. If you look at the root uh, wording that is used there, to restore is to turn back. And now, go back and remember where we started. What had happened that led David to pray this psalm or to author this psalm? It was a critical time in his life, a time in which he felt horrible about what he had done. Have you ever felt horrible about something you've done? Of course we all have. Something we've said, someone's feelings we've hurt, maybe a particular sin that was private, but we feel horrible about it because we let down God. God says, "You know what I can do? I can I can I can Make it all better. I can turn back. And this is the way that we should feel that when we have sinned in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These of God you will not despise. But Once we have been forgiven, and this goes back to the concept of guilt that we referenced just a few moments ago. Once we have been forgiven, we should turn our attention to sinners elsewhere. Because notice what happens after verse 12. Verse 12, he says, restore me and uphold me by your generous spirit. And then what will I do? I will rejoice. He says, I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners shall be converted to you. You know, long before Paul was talking about the gospel, long before the New Testament was talking about evangelism, a thousand years before the advent of Jesus, David was saying, I want to take the forgiveness that I have enjoyed, the restoration of myself in God, and I want to communicate that to others. Verse 13 is is an evangelism verse, is it not? That I may teach transgressions your ways so that sinners will be converted to you. You know, if someone were to read that verse to me without any context, I might say, that sounds like a Paul to Timothy verse to me. But no, that's a David verse when he's speaking to God. And then that brings me to a seventh and a final thing. And that brings us full circle back to guilt, which has kind of been an underlying concept of our study this morning. Where he says, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You are the God of my salvation. And then, what will I do? I will sing aloud of your righteousness. What does it mean to deliver? There in verse 14. Deliver me from guilt. We all understand what it means to deliver. Whether it be pizza that's delivered to your house whether it be you being delivered from danger. But I thought that was interesting. I said, I want to really kind of just spend an extra 60 seconds studying that. And I came across that in the original language, the Hebrew language, that it literally means to snatch away. And I thought, that's cool. I thought, that's neat. God says... I will snatch away your guilt from you so you don't carry it anymore. Remember how David must have been feeling at this critical time. You and I have experienced guilt over things that we have done. And by the way, this is one of those passages that you and I can turn to when we are studying with someone who says something along the lines of, I can't be forgiven, given all the ugliness in my life. You've ran across those people before. People say, I I, I can't go to, if I went into that church building, I'm afraid that the place may catch on fire. That's how sinful I am. We always go to Paul and say, here's a man who had consented to murder. Take him here to Psalm 51 and say, you're talking about a man who committed adultery, who lied, who deceived, who led people astray and committed murder. And he says, God has the power to snatch away my guilt and to take it away from me. But what do we do from time to time? We hold on to the guilt. We allow it to drag us down. And we need to remember that once we are delivered or rescued or snatched away from the ugliness, we are to sing aloud of his unrighteousness. So rather than saying, well, yeah, God forgave me, but I'm still going to render myself powerless in his sight. No, sing aloud. God forgave me, and I'm moving forward. It's one of the reasons why, as I've confessed on numerous occasions, I love Philippians 3 so much, those things that were behind I leave behind and I reach forward to those things which are ahead. And I understand that Paul's probably talking about a couple of different things there. That maybe he's talking about his past successes that he's not dwelling on. And I get that in Philippians 3, verse 12, 13, 14. But I love the, the concept of God snatching away the guilt. Because that's what I want from God. And I think I speak for all humanity. I think I speak for all of us. We want God to snatch away our guilt. We want God to get rid of the ugliness in our life. And so I believe it is very appropriate for us to say, God, there are some things I want from you. Now, we always preface this and we go back to where we began. Now I hope you understand where I was going with this. We don't do it in a pompous way. We don't do it in an arrogant way. We do so with incredible humility. But God... The man after his own heart, as the book of Acts teaches us, says, God, I want this, 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 and this. I want seven things from you. That's praying boldly. And use this as a framework for your own personal prayer this week, this month, the rest of this year, the rest of your life. These are things that I'm working to put into practice, and I hope that you will consider doing that as well. If you are not a Christian, I hope that you want forgiveness. I hope that this morning you're saying, you know what? I have not been forgiven of my sin. And I want my life to change. And I want God to change my life. The world would teach that all you need to do is to accept Jesus into your heart. Or pray the sinner's prayer. Or speak to some man... Or maybe make some donation. But the Bible teaches that you must hear. John 5.24 The Bible teaches you must believe. John 8.24 The Bible teaches you must repent of your sins. Luke 13 verses 3, 4, and 5 The Bible teaches that you must confess your sins. As was taught in Matthew 10.32-33 Or as was exemplified in the book of Acts chapter 8. The Bible teaches that you must be baptized as we read in 1 Peter 3 verse 21. Those are not things that men say. Those are things that the Bible says. And the Bible is the inspired word of God. And that's how you have access to God and can be his child. And be redeemed and delivered. And all the blessings that we've talked about this morning. If you're here and you're ready to become a Christian or if you're present... Or if you're listening somewhere. Or if you happen to hear this sermon down the road. Wherever you may be, the fact is, is you need to make a change. If that's you, make it while you have the opportunity. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And we want to help you by praying for you or praying with you. And if we can help you in any way, let us know while together we stand, while we sing.